When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Maryland sports fans. There's only one sports book in the great state of Maryland with over 50 years experience booking bets and supporting customers. Betfred Sportsbook at Long Shots is now open and is the only sports book in Frederick offering cash betting on football, basketball, world soccer, and more. Visit the Bedfred Sportsbook at I-270 and MD-85 in Frederick, right next to Longshot's Off-Track Betting. Go to BedfredSports.com for more information and your chance to win exclusive merchandise. Must be 21 or older. Play responsibly. For help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. So I was like, how often do I get to talk to fucking Stephanie Tanner about fascism? I got I to gotta make that happen, right? That's pretty cool. I guess. So. Uh, was Screech not available? Screech was not available. <laughs> There's a new Saved by the Bell like yeah. a reunion show on something or other. I can't believe none of them have anything better to do. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I, uh, you have a band from like ten years ago that you're still trying to keep afloat, right? It's not. It's really not much difference. <laughs> yeah, but uh, my band is cool. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, they're they're like that awkward photo that you try to never see, you know, like hide and make sure it gets put away. Are you telling me like, oh my god, you don't think Zach Morris and Mario Lopez like got tons like just got laid like crazy and they want to keep that ball rolling for the rest of their lives? Well, if that's the motivation, just come out and say it, and I'll leave them alone. But uh, that that was really really bad TV. Uh, <laughs> I enjoyed it for the girls. Uh, oh my god! Oh, so. Which F. Mary Kill the three girls on? Uh... Oh, let me see. Um, oh, probably uh, fuck Tiffany, Mary Lark, and kill. Uh, what's the, the last one? Um, Elizabeth Berkeley. Elizabeth Berkeley. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. You're not recording this, are you? Anyway, uh, well, Eric Miller, of course, uh, from the Pods and Sods Network, uh, welcome aboard. How are you? Doing well. Thanks for having me, Mr. Baco. I appreciate uh, any time I can come on the Cobras in Fire 
uh, whatever, never mind, especially when Luce isn't around. It's, uh, <laughs> you know, good times. And uh, just for him, because uh, he loves it when I do this, what's the weather like out there tonight? <laughs> it's, a, it's a bit nippy. Yeah. You know, it's like, uh, I don't know, 40s or something. Yeah. How are the cats bit, doing? A little bit drizzly. They're good. Yeah. You know? uh, how many you got running around there? Three? I got two. Okay. I, usually I have three, but uh, I have two at the moment. Uh, my youngest one, Brody, who I photograph probably incessantly. Uh, I don't want to get him a little sister yet because he's a bit skittish. Hmm. So I don't want to wreck his personality, but uh, he's got to come in <laughs> sooner than later. All right. All right. unsuspecting. Fair enough. Yeah. I've been told I, I take a, a handful of pictures of my cats, too. So I, I Yes. I love the picture of you and uh, I'm drawing a blank on the name. Uh, Pep. Uh, yeah, Pep. Pepper. Pepper Chubbs. Right. Where you're standing on the border looking, uh, you know, all is quiet on the western oh, front. Oh, and we do that every summer. I love him. Yeah. So great. He's getting up there in years, so I'm, I'm, I'm starting to wonder how many more of those I get. Well, let me get your thoughts on Soundgarden. I know you're a fan. I think one of the, the first times you messaged me personally was uh, when I posted some pictures I took of Soundgarden, uh, which ended up being close to one of their last shows, but they were um, at, uh, oh, shoot, that that uh, that Northern Invasion uh, Festival in Somerset, Wisconsin. So I had a nice photo pass, got to see some of my heroes close up for the first time, and uh, yeah, so... Uh, I took it from that that you know, and we we've you've kind of reaffirmed it since then. But you you have some affinity for these guys, yes? Yeah, definitely. And yeah, though I mean, compliments to you again on those photos. They really were outstanding. And uh, you know, I think Aww. if I remember the timing, it's just a few months before he passed, which yeah, makes a few him days. A few days. Wow, just makes them all the more you know historic in a way, right? Yeah. Um, you know, had you photographed them before then, or that was no, first time? and that was actually my first time seeing them live as well. So wow, that's cool. I mean, sad but cool. You know, yeah. that's um, a nice to have the memory. But yeah, we, I wish it didn't turn out the way it did. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a Soundgarden fan. It was this record that you know kind of turned me on. I had a friend, you know, I, I like you was kind of a, a hair metal guy, right? And you know, I was, a, you know, I sort of dug my heels in a little bit early on in the grunge uh, movement, if you will, right? I don't know if this came up on the episode with Craig, but uh, Craig and, and a friend of his and ours named Erica, they were really, really into Pearl Jam right out of the gate, right? And the three of us would hang out. I kind of dug my heels in, like, resistant to it, right, for no good reason, right? Other than, well, something's way in your face too much, you kind of like, hey, you know, cool out a little bit. You You're know talking I mean? about grunge? Yeah, well, Pearl Jam in particular with that. Okay. It was Pearl Jam 10. It was, it was everything. Eat and breathe, sleep, Eddie Vedder at that point in time, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, and then Pumpkins and, you know, I just wasn't feeling it yet. I wasn't ready for it, right? But even before Pearl Jam and Nirvana hit, um, you know, I had another friend who was into Soundgarden and sort of uh, hardcore, they called it at the time, right? Like... Uh, Seven seconds and that kind of stuff, Black Flag, whatever. Okay, yeah. Um, Jade Tree and all that stuff, like out of DC, whatever. Um, and she was into Soundgarden earlier, right, on the earlier records. And I remember her having the um, uh, uh, the picture with him on the black and white with the yellow, louder oh, than louder love. Louder than love, yeah. Yeah, big dumb sex and all that stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And I remember kind of like, you know, I was turning her on to Kiss at the time, for real, and she was kind of trying to turn me on to Soundgarden. And I just, like I said, I just wasn't ready for it yet. Like, I was still in the, you know, in the, into the fun side of rock and roll, if you will, right? Like, I wasn't into the, the 
the deeper messages in the somber, you know, the uh, morose, whatever, how you might describe that, right? So, uh-huh. you know, it took it took a little bit, and you know, as the songs were coming out, and I, I listened to a bunch of your episodes, like the, you know, uh, you and Steve and Mike when you're talking about Stone Temple Pilots, when those songs come out, like they're pretty undeniable, right? Like if you're a rock guy, mm-hmm. it's hard to resist those songs, right? Um, and you know, eventually it just kind of warmed me, you know, man in a box. When that came out, I was like, holy shit, what, what is this? Right. Um, you know, so eventually I got into it and then by the time, you know, super unknown was a bit, you know, I think it was, I don't know if it necessarily had a bigger budget, but you know, Soundgarden was, you know, they were already loved. They already had their audience, right? They already had their, they'd been around for 10 years. They had their maturity. They had their style. And they just needed to do sort of an adult version, if you will, of Soundgarden, right? A mature version, right? Take their time and and that kind of thing. And I think Super Unknown and, you know, particularly the singles, uh, you know, I think they delivered, right? And it kind of was this great uh, marriage of, like stylistically, it has those grunge elements, right? I'm sure you've described it in all the episodes here to four, but it also had like, you know, all the crazy time signature changes, which is like proggy, and I'm like a proggy guy, right? And you know, it has like uh, like ACDC, just straight ahead metal, like it's more metal, the metal side of grunge, if you will. It's the more proggy side of grunge, right? Um, you know, uh, the arrangements are all clever, so. You know, that's when I really started to take notice, right? But I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I was a super fan. It wasn't until, you know, maybe Audio Slave, where I really was like, you know, I appreciated Chris Cornell singularly way more once he, you know, got out on his own and I, you know, got into those solo records and he was doing those solo acoustic tours. Mm, yeah. those, were, those were just absolutely incredible. Like, you know, I, I love Soundgarden for what it was, but, you know, seeing him out of that context made him just, even more of a superstar in my book, which made me appreciate Soundgarden even more, right? Because there's a chemistry with those four guys, right? Um, but yeah, that's kind of my history uh, with uh, Soundgarden and Chris Cornell. When you were throwing out this list of, uh, you know, uh, the 25 grunge records, I jumped on it. There's a few I could have done, right? But, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm glad that uh, you let me do this one. You know, there's been a handful of people that, that we've talked about that, but yeah, you were one of the ones that jumped on it pretty quick. Um, and you threw this one out there. So, yeah, no, of course, uh, you you know, you were on the short list of people that I had to make sure I got involved if they were willing to anyway. You know, As, you know, I, I can't always guarantee that somebody's into grunge, though. So maybe that would have been the issue. But, well, you right. know who uh, who inspired Chris to do those solo acoustic shows, according to Chris anyway? Ron Keel. <laughs> All right. Now, you've, you've, believe it or not, you have surpassed the number of Ron Keel jokes that Craig dropped in our episode. <laughs> uh, the, the Spoon Man, the actual Spoon Man. I can't remember ah. his name, artist or something like that. But he's like, right. yeah, I'm like looking at this guy. He's entertaining people, and all he's doing is slapping spoons on his body. I can do it with a you know a guitar and... <laughs> You know, I don't need a whole band. I can probably do something. So, Well, coming in at number nine on Rolling Stone's greatest grunge albums of all time is, of course, Soundgarden Super Unknown. This album was released on my birthday, March 8th, 1994. It was recorded in the Bad Animal Studio. It clocks in at a whopping 70 minutes and 13 seconds. Produced by the guy we just said, Michael Beinhorn. Uh, rumor was it, according to him, that Rick Rubin was actually... Uh, pretty close oh, wow. to set up to do it, but um, he was convinced to give a sh- throw his pitch to see about getting it. So, 
Um, it debuted at number one on Billboard 200, selling a little over 300,000 copies. It has been certified five times platinum and has sold a little over 9 million copies worldwide, which is easily their highest selling record of their six album basically career. I guess before we get into the record, uh, let me ask you this. Have you ever seen them live? I did not. I've only seen Chris Cornell live, uh, a bunch of times. He, a couple times in Atlantic city. One time I was in the front row and, uh, David Bryan from Bon Jovi was behind me. Actually, that might have been in Red Bank. Uh, David <laughs> Bryan had better was like, seats than the, the the keyboard player from Bon Jovi, right? I was all excited. Like, the the lesson there is: no one. This is why you don't play keyboards, David. <laughs> yeah, you want to sit in front of Eric Miller, you got to pick up a guitar or you got to sing. Yeah. yeah, and then one time front row in AC, and he, you know, anytime he was in Jersey, he would do Bruce songs, which was pretty cool. I think the one night he did. He played Atlantic City in Atlantic City, and he played uh, Highway Patrolman or Highway Trooper. What's that man's song? Yeah, um, I don't know. I yeah, know what I'm talking about. Uh, and Thunder Road, I heard him do. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It, boy, those those acoustic shows are way cool because the covers he would do. His brother came out at the one where I saw him. His older brother, wow. and uh, it was uh, it was trippy to see. You know, like Chris Cornell's a fucking rock star, right? That dude is. Textbook rock star, handsome yeah. voice, talent, the whole thing. Eight swag feet tall. Right? right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, good looking. Um, but then I saw his brother, and he's like, he looks like Chris Cornell without those things. Right? <laughs> it's like nothing against his brother. I'm sure he's a lovely guy. But like, remember when like Patrick Swayze's brother would show up? Mm-hmm. Like uh, Patrick Swayze was real handsome and whatever, right? And dances and all that. And then his brother would come out, and it was like a bad copy. It was like the Bart Simpson from The Attic. And the Simpsons episode, right? Uh, but Frank, it was it Frank was, Stallone till Sylvester. That's right. <laughs> that's right. But the the thing about it that was really or cool. Matt was, Dillon's brother, the guy on, uh, um, oh, right. uh, what's that right. fucking show? I, I, Entourage. Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. The thing about it that was cool was, you know, so yeah, he was this, you know, he's this Adonis rock star guy, right? But he still has that dynamic with his brother. So it was funny to see him in that context on the stage where, like, mm. his brother it was his older brother that he looked up to, right? So there was, like, this sweetness thing that, that you know, I was fortunate enough to see on just that night, right? Because his brother was there. But, uh, yeah, I never did see Soundgarden proper. How about you? I mean, obviously, you well, shot just, him just that, that one. That was it. Just the one time. Uh, he only played one acoustic show locally that I was aware of, and uh, I didn't make it to that. But uh, it, I, I don't remember the, the scenario there. If there was some kind of tragic misjudgment of of my own or if it just wasn't in the cards i just i, don't, I just don't remember um, <laughs> kind of kind of funny too the, the 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 battle with michael beinhorn it's almost like you know it started fairly early between uh him and the band it's kind of amazing in his own words that he wasn't let go kind of early on in the process but mm-hmm. uh, everybody hung in there and, and stuck with it but uh, uh we get into more detail on that in the interview i don't know if it came up in your chat with him but uh there, there's some kind of good stuff there for anybody that wants to check that out I know he was on. I think he was on Lamoureux's show too at one point. Hmm. Um, uh, yeah, well, I never. He was on I didn't Lamoureux's get the impression. Show. Right. I didn't get the impression that it was uh, that it was negatively contentious. I thought it was positively. You know, it the the friction w- was heading in a positive direction. You uh, got a different impression when you yeah, talked to him. Yeah. Hold on. Let's see if I can find one of my notes. They, I mean, as recently as I swear, two thousand eleven to two thousand fourteen. Um, Chris Cornell referred to him as an adversary in the studio and said, and, and said that we really didn't need him, 
because we were used to producing ourselves. So the fact that that late in down the road, you're still, you can't, it's, it's not even a laugh about it now kind of thing, you know, right. uh, wow. Hey, it all worked out, you know, we're, we're Beinhorn kind of definitely comes from that. And is like, Hey, you know, I, I appreciate the fact that those guys, as much as we butted heads, they didn't bail. They, they, they didn't, they stayed the course and we made a great record. So, right. Wow. Well, before we get into we'll, we'll get into the record. Did you have any uh, other thoughts on the record specifically, as far as any, any just general thoughts? I mean, it's a it's a dark record. I was I was saying <laughs> to you before we went on. Uh, you know, I'm uh, you know we got this pandemic. It's a dark time. I kind of stepped away from podcasting. You know, I got some depression going on. I'm looking for a job, and it's not great. And uh, yeah, thanks for inviting me to dive into this <laughs> <laughs> terribly depressing record. But, uh, you know, it's a uh, it is what it is. Right. And it's it's interesting, you know, to watch interviews with uh, with them uh, contemporaneous of the time. Right. Because, you know, you watch clips of them as older men and they, you know, they can be more thoughtful and stuff like that. And not just not just them necessarily, but like in general, you know, younger younger artists right like you they 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 seem to have gone out of their way to be aloof at the time right you know uh you know talking to eddie better now versus then is a different experience oh, yeah. right you know so i watch those interviews from like 94 and stuff and i'm just it frustrates me a little bit because you know i know where they're going or whatever with the you know the the benefit of time and i i just want to you know just answer the question, right? Like, you know, offer a little bit of information, right? Instead yeah. of, you know, looking off and not wanting to be bothered by the interviewer and, you know, that stuff just kind of bugs me after the fact, but, uh, you know, whatever. Never you know I'm talking right. about? Uh, um, yeah, I do know exactly what you're talking about, but that's kind of the aesthetic of, of that whole genre. I had a moment like that personally with, uh, Henry Rollins where, hmm. We were at a festival and I was doing like an independent music magazine back in the mid 90s. And we had this thing where we would have a, you know, this is back when we would print it and whatever, right? So we had a piece of paper where you would write down your top 10 Desert Island discs, right? So, you know, it was called Tuned In, clever title, right? Yeah. So when we went, we went to this <laughs> festival, I had a bunch of these blank tuned in forms, right? So whoever I was going to run into, I would like get them to sign it, right? By that, by the way, that was the day I saw uh, Courtney Love's uh, movies. Bummer. Just a fun fact. Um, That's too bad. Since, Sorry, bro. Since we're, since we're talking about crime. I had no idea, man. I know this has been a rough <laughs> year, but that had to be horrible. <laughs> uh, yeah, these are the things that will keep me from Makes running. Twenty twenty seemed good. <laughs> right, exactly. you survived that. So I, I went over to Henry Rollins. He was standing by himself. <laughs> kind of perched against the, you know, like his arms crossed and he was just kind of waiting for somebody or something or just hanging out, right? It was an all-day festival type of thing. And it wasn't like he was about to go on stage or anything. He just was there. Uh, so I went over and I, you know, I kind of had the form and I kind of handed it to him with a pen, you know, politely and said, you know, hey, Mr. Rollins, would you mind, uh, you know, filling out this, uh, you know, your top 10 favorite uh, albums kind of thing, right? Um, and only take a second. And, you know, he hadn't looked at me through all of that uh, nervous asking that I was doing and fumbling through. Um, but then when I said it only take a second, then he looked up and my, you know, made eye contact and said, one, I'm still here, aren't I? Oh, my like, God. Clever. I'm actually like, disappointed in him that I didn't have something better for you. <laughs> I just wanted to say, like, well, fucking don't do it then. Just say no. You could have <laughs> just said no. It would have been fine. But he filled it out. He was gracious, actually. But, oh, yeah. uh, you know, but anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So... Uh, 
you know, it's, it's rough to go back and watch some of the some of where they were at that time. Um, you know, I like them as older, more mature men. And, you know, even like even Kim with the gray hair and the ponytail mm-hmm. looks like a badass in his older days, doesn't he? Compared yeah, to- a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> you know what you don't get that with is with the hair metal guys. They're still talking and acting like they were back then. <laughs> there is no maturity. <laughs> right. Brett Michael sounds right. exactly like he did on the Joan uh, Rivers show in whatever 96 that was. But You know, the best example of that for me, and I love the band. I'm not saying anything negative about them, is Y&T, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I love Y&T, but they're, you know, they're six-year-old dudes wearing too many bracelets and, you know, a lot of, like, layers and scarves and... You know, their new album is like face new album is 10 years old now. Face Melter, right? They yeah. like they didn't never they didn't even bother to like try, you know. <laughs> they, they know what their strengths are and they're sticking to them, you know what I mean? Yeah. I I I'm I'm a fan too and I was looking forward to that documentary until I actually saw the trailer for it and then I'm like, okay, if this is in the trailer, this is going to cement it it pretty much cemented what you're saying. I saw them in a bar here a couple years ago and they they destroyed it. It was great. Killer show. Amazing. Great set list, great band if you like them. But Dave still, and this is a small stage. I've like I've played this stage before. That's how small it is. He still had the thing where a guy ran up and handed him his guitar and took one off him, and you know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, they had this whole routine at the end that was like, it's it, this works a lot better in an arena. You understand that that you, you know, there, there was just a handful of little moments like that throughout the show that were a little like you kind of cringed for them, but it's like yeah, he's having fun. What the fuck do I care? right yeah Yeah. but uh well there yeah there was never a reason to stop doing what they were doing right fair enough yeah i mean if you're if that's how you're making your living but i i just i can't see getting much insight from anything that guy's going to tell me about his career uh other than details of their career and i just don't know that i care that much he was uh on the contrary i had him on my show and he was super eloquent and real gracious and just you know I love Y&T. Nothing against them. I'm just saying. No, they, I, I think they're great, man. They never they never cut their hair and tried to change. And, then they, you know, they don't have like uh, – the, the other thing about them that's great – we should do a whole Y&T episode yeah. – is like the, the band members, right? Like he – you know, Phil Kenamore passed away. Like he's, they've had losses in the band, right? Yeah. Um, but he doesn't replace them with like a 20-year-old like drummer. Like he's, he's got like – you know, he yeah. still has like 50, 60-year-old musicians around him, right? They're all – contemporaries yeah i kind of like that it was jimmy degrasso for a while i think on drums but uh i don't know oh, he I don't... he joined the band in like 1990 or the late 80s um he came back he had come yeah. back like, no i know uh, what you're saying but yeah he's like uh he, he when he was a young man he was in that band but uh you know how like with technology now and smartphones I still, in my head, I'm like Y&T, like Dave has it set up where the daily itinerary is slid under the hotel room doors. <laughs> you know? <laughs> this is like, no, we're not going to get an app. Uh, you're going to make your fucking wife print these things out in the hotel lobby uh, printer and slide them under each band member's door so they, it's like, <laughs> so so official. This is like we're on tour. Speaking of uh, older older bands, I listened to your Siamese Dream episode that was with uh, was that Joey? That was with Joey, yep. Joey Haney, right? Um, you guys didn't even mention the strings on uh, Disarm is by David Ragsdale of Kansas, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, but, I, uh, I how did well, I had, leave that that key detail out? It's such a fun fact, but the the um, uh, is it? <laughs> you had you had the engineer uh, Marissa Tomei's brother, yeah, uh, Jeff. Yes, um, he's not. No, brother. no. 
That's how I remember the last name. But yeah, he mentioned That's it was Ragsdale. I thought I'd remember it, but he mentioned it was Ragsdale. He charted it, and you just went right over it. Yeah. The dude from the dude from Kansas did the strings on disarm. That's pretty cool. Well, you know, I'm going to tell you something, uh, Eric, and this is just uh, me opening up a little bit. I am this moment old when I found out the name of the guy who did who was in Kansas that did the name of his name or whatever. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, the 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 engineer mentioned it. He told you it, and you didn't even you didn't even. He uh, mentioned it was it. Kansas. Yeah, he said from David Ragsdale from Kansas. I didn't even give him an. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. He wasn't the. He's he's not the original violin player. That's Robbie. See, that's Steinberg. why. Yeah, I mean, it, to but me, it's always about the original. <laughs> but he's been with them off and on since like 1991. Mm. Right, he's there now. So that's good for him. Pretty neat. Um, pretty when you hear when you hear Smashing Pumpkins disarm, think of it's the violin player that plays Dust in the Wind solo. Right, that's the guy doing the strings on disarm. That's pretty cool. It's something, that's for sure. Uh, okay. Well, uh, I don't remember if this came out on a proper vinyl release, uh, but we so we're going to go side one off our cassette that we just picked up at, I don't know, Sam Goody. That was popular back then. Uh, cool. or in, any East Coast chains that you might have been swinging in to get the latest Soundgarden record? Uh, Sam Goody, Wall to Wall Sound. Uh, it was FYE later yeah. on, right? Oh, there's still one of those here in the Twin Cities, you know. Yeah. Mm. They're not doing so good. Aren't really? Yeah. Yeah. There were a lot of independent stores. Of course, me. right. No, yeah, you got Tower Records out west. Uh, yeah, we had Tower. Mm, really? Okay. Yeah, it was like Music Land and uh, was kind of part of Sam Goody, if I understand it right. Um, but anyway, I don't remember this. Oddly, I wished I, I, this was one of the... I, I used to keep my receipts, my CDs. I was hoping it was in this one. I, I don't have the specific recollection. I would have got it on release day. Uh, I was full on into... They were one of my you know three bands at the time for sure. So the record opens with Let Me Drown. So this is just a solid, great way to set the tone of the record, a riff-based uh, rock song. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Chris Cornell talked about having written this with a uh, live performance in mind. Uh, it, just a searing solo, amazing rhythms, catchy but not uh, hooky, uh, you know, or catchy and hooky but not cheesy, I should say, right? Not, um, you know not uh camp or whatever but you know just a good solid opener let me drown you know i dig it i um i i think it's a good track i do think it's a a good opener it, it's no rusty cage and that's kind of where where it, it probably would lose if it lost anything it would, with me it would be that it's not one that i i go back to a lot is other than listening to the record but um i don't know the, the verses for me are stronger than the chorus uh, I do well before I jump into any rating system here. Uh, do you have what are we uh, what are we using for a grunge rating today? 
Uh, well, I got an assortment. Nice. I listened. I listened to a few of your previous episodes, and I Stephen Michael said a Doc Martin. Uh, yeah, I Joey Haney said a crossface chicken wing. I don't. I'm gonna give. I'm gonna give. Let me drown. I'm gonna give it uh, three out of five rusty cages. Oh, nice. Um, three out of five. You, you, I, the thing is, I, I gave it a, a four overall, but uh, I give the verses a five. I love the verses, but the choruses are a three to me. So I'm going to say this is a four. So I really thought that you would have had a higher rating just by the way you, you were more gushing about it. Um, <laughs> you, you're just a little more stingy with your uh, um, Rusty Cage rating. So. Um, yeah, it's just, yeah, it's not that important. Who gives a shit what I think? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's the way I look at it. Wow. Uh, well, that's uh, well. Thanks for coming on. <laughs> kind of telling people I got a really great guest for this one, but uh, anyway, um, I, I have a story about the next track, uh, "My Wave." Trouble and I, when I built my little basement recording studio, we would sit down here and we would demo and hash out songs. And every now and then, one of us would have an idea that was sort of fleshed out. You know, a lot of times we would just pick up a guitar and just hammer away and see what came in. But this one time, and, and our drummer was 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 here for this one. A lot of I I played drums on most of the demos, but when he was available, he would just come down because you know he's a drummer. He can't write. <laughs> um, <laughs> another cheap shot at drummers. Oh, I miss you, Duffy. Um, so we're playing this song, and I had I'd kind of worked it out. I'd had a little bit of of melody and a couple vocals, a lyrics written down, but basically the music up to a chorus is what I had. So. I I start playing it, and nobody's really feeling it. You know what I mean? It's like, what's going on? I, I mean, I really thought that you guys would like this. So our, our drummer, of all people, he's like, "That is that a Soundgarden song? And, you know, it took a couple minutes to finish. I was like, oh, I'm talking about it. And all of a sudden, he's like, it's some of the, that wave, my wave song. It's that. And I'm like... No, it's not. So I ran upstairs, got the CD. Uh, we were high tech back then. I had a little boombox dropping in there, and you know how that that da na na. It didn't oh, even yeah. get that, and but that that wasn't the part that I ripped off. Um, uh. But yeah, I had just I don't know through osmosis. I had fucking written. You know, say what you want to say. And I had different <laughs> lyrics. And I think the, the verse was actually played in reverse and with different notes, but it was that same. Dun, 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 dun. So mine was like probably a. Dun, 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 dun. You know, but I was like, yeah, I guess 
What what else you guys got? <laughs> we never took it too much further. My uh, my drummer burst my bubble. That's not the first time that's happened, but uh, sometimes it's not quite as derivative. And you go, well, I can save this little piece. I'll probably have to scrap this for. Well, if you're gonna if you're gonna subliminally uh, rewrite a song, you could choose far worse, right? Sure. I mean, I mean clearly, I like it. So yeah. I don't want to spoil whatever rating you got for this. So uh, what, what 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 do you think about my wave? And I just want to point out too that uh, Chris Cornell did go on the record. And he talked about how uh, how he his writing this song was actually derivative of Samantha Fox's "Naughty Girls Need Love Too." I always uh, I, I I thought there was something similar between those. <laughs> uh, so this was the third single off the record. Music's by Chris and Kim. Uh, I mean, this is the thing about Soundgarden is the arrangements are always interesting, yeah. right? There's kind of like. Like you were talking about, you know, obviously the tones and the sort of call and response intro stuff is just amazing, right? And there's sort of like two verse, two verses before they get to that uh, keep it off my wave yeah. bit, um, which is great. Um, the the rhythms are always so just engaging. Like you never get bored. Like you can never sort of zone out on a Soundgarden song. Like if you're listening, like it's always clever and smart and exciting and unsettling right you have to stay actively listening right it, it sort of pulls you in and kind of keeps you in in that regard um and they have you know they have that bold aggressive thing that just keeps the listener uh it kind of makes the listener contend with what they're doing right you know you can't it's not a passive listen in other words right um, and i you know the i love there's kind of this epilogue at the end of this song where it kind of dissolves and you know in the video they're kind of walking off the stage like you know like they just fucking destroyed it. Of course they did, right? And you know, it's. I think it's one of the best tracks on the rec on the record by far. My wave, I love it. They got that cool kind of. I don't know. It's like a seven four drum beat or something like that during the verses. But then yeah, just a straight up four four kind of. When they get to that, keep it off my wave. Yeah, it's a. You know, and and I I I believe Kim Thale because he can be kind of a smug, arrogant prick once in a while. But I actually, honestly, believe me that that those kind of timing and arrangements were more organic than planned out. That it just kind of felt right, and that's you know, mm-hmm. but like you said, they're a band for eight ten years at this point. They have been playing together for some time. They got to be used to how each other works, you know. And a key component when when you get it to this level of your career to do something great is to be able to do that. But uh, what do you got for a rating here, man? Yeah, they're. Uh, oh, did I? If you got more, go ahead. No, no, no. And I, you know, I'm not a musician, right? So um, again, I heard you in a previous episode, so I'm not going to talk about drop D tunings. Mm. Uh, just don't use call, power chords. If I call something a riff and it's not a riff, feel free to adjust me. <laughs> um, and I don't necessarily know time signatures, right? So you know, but you know, one way if you're a, if you're a, a non drummer, right, is is to try to tap along to the snare, right? For yep. instance, there you go. right. So. You know, if you're if you're again, if you're pass if you're just passively listening to my wave and you're tapping your foot, whatever, right? You're gonna have you're not gonna hit the snare ever on this song because he's doing these turnarounds and all these interesting time shifting things. So, uh, yeah, I would give. Let's see. They should use do? my wave on an episode of Dancing with the Stars. Let's see. I'm uh, fucking uh, do it right? better up, man. Yeah, I'm gonna give uh, my wave. I'm gonna give it uh, five out of five. Hero Yamamoto's. Oh, hero approved. Um, this gets another. This also gets a five out of five for me. Hero Yamamoto's. Uh, up next is uh, track three, "Fell on Black Days." 
Three songs kicking off a record just incredible. This was the fifth single. Um, the you know we could talk do a whole episode about his vocals, right? But one of the things about this song that jumps out, I'm sure I'm not alone in this, is when he hits the the higher like you know seems to greet me with a smile, like he hits that you know. Oh that yeah, that is perfect. Oh my god, like that's such a smart like he could just go there vocally so naturally, mm-hmm. right, and then back down. You know, like he, the verses on this are a little bit bluesy, like in the way he's singing it, right? He's not doing some of the screaming stuff, which we get in some of the other songs, right? And some earlier records, you know, it seems like, and I don't know if this is to credit Michael Beinhorn, when I had him on, you know, we talked a lot about how he liked Chris Cornell's voice, uh, maybe for the first time in a, in a in a thoughtful way, if that makes any sense. So, you know, I think, you know, I suspect that, you know, Chris Cornell realized that, you know, this was going to be their record that was going to break them in a in a bigger way. Right. So, you know, they they took more time in the studio recording these things. Right. And, you know, it shows in his vocals. Right. Like you can tell he he really thought this out. And, you know, there's the incredible dynamics, like when he's restrained, when he's opening up on just a note like that. Uh you know, I think it all sort of pays off. There's some really incredible clean uh, guitar licks, not riffs, but licks in there, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, both, yeah. Uh-huh. You get a combination right? there, yeah. A couple riffs, a couple licks, yeah. <laughs> uh, some, some runs You're going to have there. me all self-conscious about music stuff now. Uh, right? And, you know, just to go on the vocal thing a little bit more, like the that line, you know, sure don't mind to change. Like when he's singing that, Right. Especially if you watch the video, there's there's one time he delivers it where he's looking right at the camera. Right. And you there's such intensity like you feel like he's, you know, he's pleading or, you know, he's pleading for normalcy or he's like on the verge of tears and rage and a primal scream and all that stuff kind of balled into one. And when you're watching that video and he's looking in the camera, he's looking you in the eye and it's hard not to feel that intensity. Right mirror it right back at him right and you know i think i think he just had a level of maturity right so i guess i guess he was about 30 when they did this right so you know you're a different person maybe at 30 than you are at 20 let's say right so just absolutely brilliant this is you know fell in black days you know just incredible I'll stop rambling now. He was um, one of the more natural singers as far as how wide his spectrum was that he could do kind of that more kind of low-key whatsoever I feel was, you know, that kind of deal where yeah. it, um, it, it it was easy for him. It didn't sound 
Uh, I don't want to compare them to somebody else because that's not the point. There are singers who have that very high-end rangy shit that when they got to bring it down to be a little more soulful uh, or a little more, I don't know, thoughtful, however you want to describe it, that it, it doesn't sound like it's a natural transition for him, where I, I right. would say the opposite with him. He could he could make that move you were talking about, treat me with a smile. You know, I mean, that's just... That's a, a classic line, and what a, what a perfect thing to bring up too. And um, yeah, Beinhorn talks about uh, the the specifics on on how he mic'd or set up so Chris could record the 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 vocals. The, the big the big advantage was that he could do it without headphones, and that was the first time Chris had, had ever done that. Oh, just unjerked my uh, head. Speaking of headphones, uh, anyway, it was the first time he had done that. While I plug my headphones back in here. I'm still not sure I understand how because the music's coming through the uh, the monitors, uh, and he explains how it doesn't show up in the vocal mic, but and, but yet it it still audibly hits Chris's ears. Mm. Uh, but so yeah, it's it, he breaks it down for what it's worth. What, what you were t- touching on there, it is kind of nerdy and geeky. And like I said, I'm still not sure I quite get how he did it, but it obviously it worked. And he I, he he thinks that Chris probably carried forward with that. It was just uh, something that he was always. He had a hard time dealing with people around, is how he put it. He didn't like to sing when others were, were in the studio, so he set right. it up so he could do it alone, too. So, I don't know. And thankfully, maybe he he could be more pure or experiment, experiment more without eyes on him, right? Yeah. I mean, maybe a little more. Like, if, if, if it's a comfort thing, that's definitely going to be something that comes out of that. Uh, what about a rating, man? Uh, I'm going to give this one uh, five out of five ultra megas. Okay. Um, this also gets five out of five ultra megas for me. So, <laughs> uh, next up we have Mailman. Together with your mail. You do that every time, or is it just me? <laughs> nope. I think it's just you. <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, music by Matt Cameron. It it just cranks and settles in, and it, it's one of those relentless type of deals, right? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, obviously the performances are all uh, top notch. It's kind of a mood uh, head bobber. Uh, you know, obviously about. Uh, stratification, social, economic stratification, right? Going from the bottom to the top to the top to the bottom and so forth, right? That might um, be overly academic for our listeners. Would you like to uh, break so? down stratification for us? <laughs> uh, live, existing in different strata. Okay. Right? Okay. That, that's a big fucking help, asshole. All right. Imagine two people. Two extremely wealthy people. One of them inherited their money, acquiring it through the luck that comes with being born to owners of immense amounts of property and wealth. And the other person worked for what they have. They started at the bottom and through years of hard work and clever dealing, they built a business empire. Now, which one would you say deserves their wealth? Sociologically, the interesting thing here isn't your answer, not really. 
It's the fact that different societies in different times and places have different answers to this question. Because the question of what it means to deserve wealth or success or power is a matter of social stratification. <laughs> and there's and there's <laughs> and there's exploitations in that, right? So, you know, uh, you know, the rich guy pissing on the poor guy, and you know, the poor guy being exploited, that type of thing. Um, you know, that's what he's talking about. The ma- I, I think, right? The mailman is kind of the 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 servant, right? And it kind of mm. reverses roles in the in the middle verses, if I remember correctly. And that, you know, and then again, vocally, like at the end when he opens up with that, "Yes, I'm riding you," just that voice, man. That that dude. I love the way he delivers that chorus with that. I know I'm headed for the bottom. You know, and then falls up with that. But I'm riding you all the way. Oh, fuck fuck yeah. yeah. This is uh, is a good one, man. Yeah, that's the exploitation thing. Like if he's, you know, if I'm... If I'm going from the top to the bottom, and you, that's cool as long as I'm taking you with me, right? Uh, as I'm above you all the way, right? Uh, <laughs> he just started making low-grade porn, and his his wife is <laughs> uh, <laughs> the this feature. Uh, uh, I don't know, star. That's the way I hear it. Someone, <laughs> someone order a package, right? Yeah, package. Yeah. Uh, so, well, how about a rating, man? This one, I'm going to give it. Uh, I'm going to give it four out of five. Jesus Christ poses. Oh, nice. Uh, you know, we're pretty lockstep, other than the first track here. I also have this four to five. Jesus Christ poses. Nice. One. The one thing I'll say about this record, like there are there are songs that I like less than than others, right? Um, Seventy minutes is kind of a long record, right? Like it, it is. Sometimes it feels it feels long, right? And I I don't know what I would cut out, but you know I. I, have I a do. Feeling it's that, coming up. Okay, <laughs> this could be trimmed down a little bit, right? Um, yeah, I, I wanted yeah. to ask Michael about that, but we had gotten pretty long, and that was that was one of the ones I just said not. I don't really care that much. Right. They they talked about it at the time. They had about thirty songs, and I think they recorded like sixteen or something. They said, yeah. Uh, so you know, there there was that twenty fourteen deluxe edition, which was like five discs and has all kinds of. Just all kinds of extra bullshit, you know, right. like <laughs> quality material in there, right? Like, you know. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think you're right. 16 is what they recorded. Uh, what was the one track that didn't make it? I have it here. If you don't uh, know it off the top of your head, it just burp. Uh, she likes surprises, um, and yeah. that was included on that uh, deluxe edition. I believe they they threw it on a B side of a single for something off this record too. Mm-hmm. Well, it was an extra track on different printings, right? Depending where oh, it came Oh, correct. Out. Yes. Yeah, it's a hidden track. So I got a note or two on that if we get there. All right. Fair enough. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll squeeze that in before we flip to side two. Um, we're not done with side one yet, though. What about um, Super Unknown? Soul better, Chris Cornell in Super Unknown or Paul in God of Thunder? Hmm. 
I might give Paul the edge it's there, uh, especially live. Um, uh, well, back in the day. Uh, I, think, really I think if it was today, Chris Cornell could hit it better. <laughs> right. <laughs> Even today. Yeah, right now. Yeah. <laughs> nice one. It's like the, uh, it's like the uh, Comedy Central roast. I forget who it was. Uh, how is it that uh, Kurt Cobain looks better than Courtney Love still? <laughs> it's Anthony Jeselnik's joke, if I remember. Oh, nice. He's funny. Uh, yeah, Super Unknown is just, you know, just straight ahead. The video's really cool. It's got this awesome trippy, like, uh, special yeah. effects coming at you. It's, yeah, it's just a trip thing. It's not, and I wouldn't even, let me ask you how it fits in the grunge. Like, I don't know that this is, it kind of expands the definition of what what grunge is kind of narrowly defined as, right? I, well, see, that I'll, 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 I'll answer that like this. I, there are a lot of songs that kind of expand um, Soundgarden beyond what 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 some might narrowly scope grunge. Uh, uh, we've gotten into that on a few records, you know. I mean, uh, people want to talk about Stone Temple not being grunge or um, Smashing Pumpkins. Uh, that came up during a, uh, uh, my episode with Craig. And uh, the thing is, they all had the same audience, and they all benefited. You know what I mean? Like. The, as much as Soundgarden was there first and maybe the Pumpkins were already kind of doing their own thing before Nirvana broke, once Nirvana did, they pulled every one of those people with them. And that scene, they went on tours together. They played shows together. You know what I mean? Uh, Danzig took, uh, I want to say, someone like Soundgarden out on an early tour. And then when Soundgarden broke, they weren't reaching out to Danzig to go on tour with. You know what I mean? And so, right. and Danzig didn't get lumped in with that stuff. So the, to me, I, the term grunge being a little broad-based, and especially how this list put, was put together, is probably one of the, the least critical things for me for the term. Because, you know, to me, without grunge, and this is where grunge deserves some heat, you don't get bands like Saving Abel or, you know, Breaking Benjamin, all those things like that. You know, they all came because, and they benef- their careers were basically invented by grunge, you know? Fucking, uh, I don't know. I, I, you know the bands I'm talking about, but yeah, you, I do. you might like there's, them. <laughs> yeah, there's, and there's, a, there's an interesting thing. You're talking about how they benefited from each other, right? So if you think of the timing of this record, so when did this come out? 94? Yeah, this is a uh, pretty good chunk like, from Bad Motorfinger, like almost three years. It was like a month after Kurt Cobain died, right? It was, yeah. it was, and, you know, so that means Nirvana had been through Nevermind and in utero, right? So they had, you know, all this was possible, right? Pearl Jam had already been through their second record. Versus was already out, right? Um, this, yeah, this was on the heels of all that success. And like I said at the top, like Soundgun already had, before all that came out, they already had their identity established, right? Mm-hmm. So they got to, they got to watch all of that explode, right? And then kind of come in. I mean, they were working on this throughout that, right? And they toured and all that stuff, right? But they got to they got to benefit from that. That's probably why it debuted at number one, you know, on the day of release, right? Because they had that that genre had all this collective momentum, right? And Soundgarden was already who they were. They were already beloved and all that stuff, right? So, you know, the audience was thirsty for, you know, the uh, earliest band, you know, one of the earliest bands to do this, Soundgarden, to, to come back, right, if you yeah. will. 
Well, super unknown. Back to that. I do love the intro with that, and it's that's classic Soundgarden to me, though. As much as the song kind of takes you in a different direction once it gets going, those early notes, though, that's kind of got that raw tone and that almost loose, almost sloppy feel to that riff, mm-hmm. even though it's it's played in perfect time. But the verses are almost like a bizarro version of the Beatles. Um, All you need is love, if you think about it. You know, where it's just kind of like that. This is that, then that that kind of deal. Um, right. Ozzy did it with. Uh, I just want you, where he's like, uh, you know, I don't think I'm explaining that very well. So the, the Beatles is like, there's nothing you can say that can't be said. There's nothing you can do that can't be done. Uh, that's one of the takeaways I had. But I, I fucking love this tune. I love hearing that because the next time I listen to it, I'm going to think of that. You know, I'm going to read the lyrics long. And I'm going to think of that. Yeah, I, I, I do uh, have the CD down here. I should probably pull it up. Yeah. I think Samantha Fox did the same thing on Touch Me. <laughs> uh, now, uh, who's going to get you into in the Jack Shack quicker, Samantha Fox or Cornell? <laughs> uh, he's pretty hunky, right? Oh, <laughs> he's, he's a yeah. handsome man, that's for sure. Uh, yeah. Oh, here, Here's a little taste of what I'm trying to exp- do a really poor job of explaining. If you don't want to be seen, you don't have to hide. If you don't mm. want to believe, you don't have to try. So, I mean, and that's kind of like that, you know, kind of same kind of back and forth lyric writing that has, like I said, it's been stolen several times. Ozzy's another example I, I noted here, but uh, I should have wrote down the song title. But it is that I just want you, you know, there's no undreamable dreams. There's no unsinnable sins, you know, so. Right. Anyway. Yeah, I know what you mean. I don't, right. know what the, I don't know what the term for that is, but. I'm sure there's a super unknown, <laughs> but I would give uh, I would give super unknown. I'm gonna give that five out of five Lollapaloozas. I too am giving it five out of five Lollapaloozas. We are on track to do recreate the episode with Stephen Michael with our ratings so far. Um, <laughs> up next, uh, closing uh, not quite to the end of side one is head down. This is a head down is a Ben Ben Shepherd track that uh, Chris sang. I think Chris wrote the lyrics for every song except for this one, right? I believe so. Yeah. Legato is the right term, but that great guitar line that kind of goes throughout, particularly in the beginning, it has this real, like, human-speaking, melodic sound to it, right? It's, uh, you know, it's really, it really jumps out and kind of grabs you. It's, you know, the guitar and the, you know, a trumpet or whatever, like, they have this quality where it sounds like a human voice, right? That's why we yeah. connect to them largely, right? And this is a just an exemplary example of that, you know, just an incredible example of that. And the thing I want to highlight about this, too, is I just love the drumming on the outro. It's just so great. Like Matt Cameron as a drummer, like Sean Kinney and Allison Chains, like they're they add so much. Right. A band is the chemistry of the members. Right. And, you know, the drumming that he does on the outro is just so 
I wish I was a drummer that I could explain it well, but you know, as just a novice listener, it just it just moves me every time. It's just badass. I, I, I'm now starting to feel like I've made you self conscious about talking things musically. You know, you're, you're entitled to to say things that you want, man. Uh, <laughs> They're cool. It's got a nice beat. Yeah, I, I mean, I can't stuff. describe it better than you did. Uh, um, so I too wish I was a drummer so I could explain it better. Uh, yeah, I, I I echo a lot of what you said there. I do like that. Um, the sound of the acoustic on this is almost it's it's very staccato in a way at the, even though it's being strummed and that was i don't know it's just you know you got it's got two guitars kind of playing uh oh some sort of you know harmony or augmentation of each other but uh it, it really comes together cool i love the way chris sings it it's it's kind of out there in spacey it's you know it's probably not one i'm going to throw on my prom night sure fuck playlist but uh it's it's not one i'm going to put in the trash can either so Nice. Did that uh, did that playlist ever work out for you? <laughs> did not. Uh, that's <laughs> uh, so. We maybe we ac- I actually found. Um, uh, we never did the episode, so maybe we should dig that up. I found my. Pr- I, it's literally. I have a cassette that I wrote prom night sure fuck, and it was the, the, the my own little mixtape I had in my car prom night. <laughs> um, I want to. I want to consider renaming that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um. But uh, it, look, it or was, maybe it was a, maybe it was a self fulfilling prophecy. Like maybe the fact that you made that, you know, I think I knew it wasn't going to happen before I made the tape. So I was probably um, uh, roasting myself a little bit. That's like you're gonna, just, you're still going to be a virgin at the end of the night. Uh, uh, and but anyway, when I found it, uh, I had to go out and buy a Walkman. They still make these things. I got it twenty dollars at Target. Uh, Just just so I could hear what the fuck did 17-year-old Baco think was the perfect... (laughs) What was the first... uh, What was the first... I I have it written down somewhere. It's not... I mean, it's like some deep hair metal, um, like Vamp or (laughs) some some fucking ridiculous thing. Although I do think I I threw a Chicago tune in there. I think uh, Look Away was a popular tune at that time, so I... This would have been 1986 or 87. I think that was the number one song that year. Okay, but the the, the tape I made would have been for 89, summer of 89. But uh, oh yeah, that, you're right. You're right. That is later. Yeah, 88. Well, no, I, I, I'm, I'm not saying I made sure it was the most recent Chicago hit. I might have been whenever, but, but that is not a seductive song. It's no, just it's uh, kind of sends the opposite lyrical message that you're trying to get across. <laughs> well done. Uh, yeah. <laughs> 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 I told you, I was not a very sophisticated uh, teenager. Uh, uh, but uh, anyway, uh, what about a rating for Head Down? Did we give that? I don't think we did. I'm going to give this. Uh, I'm going to give this uh, four out of five Thai cobs. All right. Well, I too am giving it four out of five Thai cobs. All right. Well, we're going to wrap up side one with uh, a, a song that I believe our our listener has heard before. Um, you like what I did there? Yes. Our listener. You you increase your listenership mm. uh, from zero. <laughs> um, <laughs> Black hole sun. Hang my head, drown my fear, till you all just disappear. Black hole sun, won't you come? Wash away. Sun. 
what can you say about it, right? Uh, you know, obviously this story that Michael Beinhorn tells and, you know, go look up the episode on the pods and side feed, but... You know, uh, or you could just wait till Thursday and uh, listen a, to me ask him, but no. <laughs> yeah. Or, yeah, or listen to it on Covers and Fire because you talk about it too. But, you know, he, the, the way he told it to me, and I'm sure I'm paraphrasing it, so check out Baco's episode this week. But, you know, the way Michael explained it was, you know, he was kind of trying to draw more out of Chris Cornell. Again, you know, you know everyone wants this to be the most successful album, uh, not only – uh, critically, but you know, also artistically. So, you know, you you can do better, right? He was kind of coaching him in that way, trying to draw more out. And I guess they would do this in a bit of a cyclical pattern. And Cornell would come in with a handful of demos or whatever, and you know, Beinhardt would say, you know, these are good. What else we got, right? And keep pushing them that way. This is the way he explained it to me. And you know, he came in one day with a tape that had like four tracks on it, and it was, I think, I forget what it was, "Fell on Black Days" and "This." And, you know, in my episode, I'm sure he does it on yours, he kind of describes, like, the first time he heard it, it was, like, just incredible. Like, you know, the, yeah. the verse, the way he said it, like, the verse builds up, builds up, and he's like, there's no way he's going to go. How can he possibly have a chorus that, you know, ascends from where this verse has taken us, right, musically? And he did, right? Yeah. And, you know, Beinhorn was moved by it, as we all were, right? It's just, you know, it's it's just one of those, it's an epic masterpiece like i don't think you know it's beatles quality right you know cornell grew up as a beatles fan as a little kid right and i'm sure that's in his dna and it's got it's got the dynamics like where it builds and builds and then those slight drops between the verses and chorus right and that you know sort of builds the tension drops out right lets the steam out and you know eventually towards the end there's the rolling toms back into the you know black holes you know all that stuff and the bridge on this song is just absolutely fucking incredible. You know, the 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 rhythm is so incredible. The drumming is just a locked in band, just killing it, right? Um, just just so good. And, and it when it drops out and it's his lone voice with that guitar, oh my god! You know, it doesn't. It just doesn't get. It's one of the best things ever recorded, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of those songs you talk about all day, break it apart musically and all that stuff, but. It's just a masterpiece. It's a genius at the top of his game. Yeah, absolutely. Um, first of all, uh, thank you for placating my ego by also deferring to, to my interview. Uh, you, we all know you had him first. John doesn't. John didn't even know. Oh, well, you know, he can go to hell. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is a perfect song. I have nothing to add that you didn't already cover. This is, it, it is really just, it, it, I, it's hard to believe that, like, he didn't have that same feeling about it. Um, because he wasn't sure that it was going to be like included on the record and like, uh, um, and even apparently the other band members kind of felt the same way too. You know, I I don't know the dynamic of them, but it sounds like they were very unified when recording this record. There wasn't a lot of like personal, um, battles between the members of the, of the group. So yeah, yeah, what a killer. I mean, uh, and, and how nice to see something this good. Um, get overplayed at the time, you know. I mean, it was you know, and think think of when was the last time something of this quality was just beat to death by radio or MTV. Yeah. MTV doesn't play videos anymore, so we kind of take them out of the equation. But anyway, yeah. I mean, I got to go back to Samantha Fox again. <laughs> what song did she steal? <laughs> what song did they steal of hers from this? Uh, I only know you've already named the two I can name. <laughs> I don't know a third one. <laughs> Um, oh, follow yeah, her just, on Instagram. 
Yeah, just another uh, note on Black Hole Sun. When he passed away, right, like there were there were a lot of moving tributes, obviously, right, um, performances and stuff. Uh, far too many to name, but the one that just just guts me every time, and I do go and watch it sometimes, uh, Nora Jones uh, played this, mm. just solo piano, and it's like a seven-minute version, and it's just glorious. Like, it, I, I can't watch it without just weeping, right? Especially, like, the line, uh, no one sings like you anymore. Ugh. What God. song do you think she'll perform when Brett Michaels dies? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Uh, yeah, I think she might do a uh, "Cry Tough," a nice solo piano version of "Cry Tough." Uh, I was gonna go on Skinny Bob, but uh, right? hammer away in that one little piano chord. Ding, 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 ding. Right. All right. Well, there you go. Uh, well, as we're uh, fast forwarding to the end of side one, let's get into a little bit of details. Now, you mentioned you had well, some kind of like uh, kind of sideways. Uh, start starting to wrap. We have to give a rating, do we not? Oh shoot! Yeah, I think let, let's uh, um, <laughs> let's uh, end the suspense. Uh, what did you give Black Hole Sun? I'm gonna give it five out of five. Good motor fingers. Ooh, nice. Um, I'm gonna give it five out of five. Good motor fingers as well. Uh, so. <laughs> Uh, oh, I'm glad you interrupted me. Sorry, I, I skipped past that. That was definitely worth it. Um, but you mentioned something just a little bit ago that you wanted to uh, maybe get into some of the uh, bonus material or some of the uh, the extra stuff that wasn't used. Yeah, there's a fair amount of, again, there was a five-disc version from 2014. Yeah. And there's a lot of demos. There's a lot of, uh, you know, outtakes and live clips and, you know, just, you know, obviously it's it's a long record to begin with and, you know, we just don't have the uh, time or, you know, I don't want to bore your audience going through all those discs or whatever. Right. But, you know, suffice to say, there's a lot, a lot of material out there. But she likes surprises is, uh, you know, pretty straightforward rocker. Otherwise, then that intro, which I'm curious about. Great hook, you know, kind of in this. What's that tone going on there? Well, I hear a guitar and like just a bass underneath it kind of played up high. That what you're talking about, or are they talking about the guitar? It almost sounds like Spidey. Uh, I probably want to listen to it with better speakers than the one on my phone right now. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it just seems, seems like a, a fairly nasally guitar riff there. Nasally, that's a good word for it. I think they ran that through a nasal uh, fuzz box with Ooh, the setting. Yeah. Uh, those are They do not make those anymore, so if you get your hands on one of them, that's uh, something to, to keep, you know. Right, yes. But yeah, interesting lyrics on She Likes Surprises. We've all known a girl like that. Mm. Um, Women are the people who like to be surprised the least in, in my personal experience. So, think so? I feel comfortable stating that generally, yes. As a blanket well, statement, I think it's accurate. As, I mean, I don't want to get into your entire life, but <laughs> did you... Did you uh, did you first learn this lesson when you rolled up at your prom day and said, hey, look, baby, look what I got for us to listen to? <laughs> Man, if you only knew the story of my prom date. Uh, yeah. uh, no, she was a good sport. Uh, she was, uh, I, wonder what she, I wonder what she's up to. <laughs> no, it was uh, nothing like that. Although uh, I painted my guitar, my, my guitar, my car. I had a, a 77... Uh, uh, Cord- what was the Ricardo Monteblan car that he advertised? Oh, the uh, Cordoba. Cordoba. 
With the uh, leather seats. Yes, the Corinthian leather. I had one of those. It was a fucking giant piece of shit. We uh, we painted it fluorescent green with a black Starsky and Hutch stripe down it. Uh-huh, nice. And a buddy of mine let me put his uh, his Keystone Classic mags on it, which are the mags that are on the actual car. So for a couple days, I actually had nice tires on the thing, too. Uh, wow. And hid the car so nobody got to see. We did, we did it the weekend before prom, and then I, friends gave me rides to school for the rest of the week. Uh, and then, yeah, a buddy of mine, uh, he, he actually just passed away. Sorry. Um, no worries. Anyway, a buddy of mine was uh, kind enough to volunteer to be the uh, a chauffeur, so he dressed all up for it, and then we show up at her house, and she actually was kind of a bitch about it. <laughs> oh, no. I was like, I did all this? Uh, but no, for the rest of the, that, that was really the only thing. She's like, I'm not getting in that. I'm like, what are you talking about? What the, what else are you going to do? You're already dressed up. I gave you the corsage. So yeah, uh, there, there's more there that are a lot of fun. Maybe I'll get into it on, on a future episode, but no. Yeah. Uh, I, I literally had to, to convince my wife that I was never going to get married just so I could propose to her in a way that she would totally be blown away. And then of course, when I ask her a true story, she says, you better not be fucking, fucking with me. That was my response. Not a yes, not a no. <laughs> a serious, you better not be fucking around with me right now. So, The romance. Yes. Well, pre-grunge, what was, uh, what was Eric Miller listening to? What was, your, what was your jam? You touched on it a little bit earlier, but let's say 1991-ish. What were you really into? Uh, 91, it would have been, I mean, you know, uh, not unlike Craig, really. Like, um, you know, Kiss... Hair metal. I was probably more into hair metal than he was, right? So I was, you know, I was uh, picking up Taiketo and stuff like that where he was not, right? Um, Taiketo. Yeah. That was a, that was a, a missed opportunity for my sure fuck tape, right? Taiketo, man. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> strip me down. You could put strip me down on there. That would be a good one. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. I was all in on them. Danry Network, Baby Animals, like. Uh, you know, if I could find good quality rock that was somewhat off the beaten path, I was all in on it, right? Uh, you then know, it, as we it, it explain this whole Debbie Gibson thing. Where the fuck does that fall in? I, I kind of let Craig go on that one when he was on. Uh, well, I mean, it's just pop. You know, I liked, uh, you know, I was uh, the right demographic for Debbie Gibson. Really? Uh, you were. Oh, you hey, were who's that? I like Debbie Gibson. I like Janet Jackson. I like Paul Abdul, you know, at that time. Uh, I like you know, looking I at like, him. I still like Michael Jackson at that time. Yeah. You know, I loved In Excess at that time. Uh, you know, but yeah, a lot of a lot of hair metal, and it was, you know, um, kind of all over the place, right? Right. Uh, and a little bit of classic rock. Queen. I think '91 was when I was really getting into Queen. Um, that kind of stuff. All right. And you like that song, Bicycle? Uh, bicycle Race. The Queen. I want to ride my bicycle. Is it called Bicycle Race? Yes. Oh yeah. Okay, that one. Yeah, I do like that song. It's not my favorite. Okay, well, what about Grunge Breaks? Uh, it sounds like you already admitted that you were, had to be dragged along a little bit before you were accepting. A little bit, yeah. Yeah. Um, not me, right away. Really? Yeah, and, and I never really liked Nirvana that much. So I'm not really sure how that happened. but Like I mentioned at the top of the show, uh, Craig Smith, my co-host on Pods and Sods, we had a friend, Erica. They were all in on Pearl Jam right out of the gate, right? And I remember when uh, Plush came out, the first single from Stone Temple Pilots. And <laughs> that wasn't the Watson. first single, but... I think it was the first no, single. No, no, it was um, uh, the, the War Machine by Kiss. Uh, what was that song? Oh, right. Sex Type uh, Thing. Sex Type Thing, sorry. Um, 
But maybe it was the first video that we saw, our first one that was it, catching. It definitely was a game changer for them. I mean, sex type thing got got some love, but nothing like plush. Right. So I remember we were together, and the plush video was on. And you know, MTV would show the credits, you know, in the bottom left corner at the beginning yeah. and the end yeah. of the video, right? Somehow we missed him in the beginning, but I already knew that it was not Pearl Jam. But I was like, look at this, Eddie Vedder dyed his hair. And I think I, I think I, I think I fooled them for a minute or two until they saw the name. I'm like, what the fuck? Yeah, that wanna... uh, there was some derivative material on that first record for sure. But uh, yeah. um, well, how do you feel about grunge now? Um, uh, have you guys uh, made up and become buddies? Of course. Yeah, I don't. Uh, I mean, I've certainly engaged in that conversation like you have, and all of us have the kind of in our little podcasting community about you know the hair metal thing and grunge and all that, but. Uh, it's all like this continuum of music. Like I don't, there's not like competition really, or yeah, you know, I don't necessarily ascribe to like these uh, delimiters between genre or whatever. You know, like if it's good, it's good. That's why I was listening to <laughs> Debbie Gibson and uh, Taiketo at the same time or whatever, right? Um, y and T, Y and T ten at that time. That was a huge record. Um, it sounds yeah. like you and, and, and your co-host, Craig, when I hear you guys talk about this stuff, were far more confident in, in just embracing that aspect than I was because I definitely had those kind of things where I like things kind of outside the box, but I was just a little bit more concerned with, you know, how it might affect the the, the street cred that I didn't even have. You know what I mean? Right. It's like, you know, I, I kind of would go back in time and just kind of punch myself a little bit, say, nobody fucking cares. Just be yourself. Exactly. Uh, um, and this was one one area that it was difficult for me, I have to admit. Even with um, uh, when I got into grunge, I, I also wanted to reject stuff that I had actually liked in the past um, right. as just childish and all this stuff, you know. And But, you know, then four or five years later, that's all back in my collection. You know what I mean? It's like, well, and then, I don't don't know, later on, I did just kind of come to terms with a little bitch I was being, but I I, I would have to admire it. It seemed, am I reading you right? That you you basically, music on a sleeve, uh, people that knew you knew that you liked Taiketo and Debbie Gibson equally. Absolutely. Yeah. um, I wouldn't put those two equally, but you know, there's, uh, I used to make mixtapes, right? And I used to celebrate the diversity on mixtape. And I'll give an example. I would always mix, like, Did you uh, ever Jam name Cash. one a prom night sherfuck? I did not. I did not. Uh, I would mix, like, uh, Janet Jackson, a, like, Black Cat or something off of Rhythm Nation into, like, Sad But True by Metallica, right? Okay. And I was real proud to mix those two because I was like, this is, that's sweet, right? That's pretty cool. Like, the diversity was kind of the point in a way, right? Well, here's the the moment you've probably been waiting for, counting down to. This is your chance, uh, Eric Miller, to answer the question: Did grunge kill hair metal? Uh, no, not at all. There probably was a marketing decision made here, or there, right? Um, but ultimately, ultimately, there's a room. There's room enough for all of them, right? Yeah. Uh, there was a temporary few years or a decade where. You know, the focus redirected, but I wouldn't say killed it. You know, in, in some cases, I would say it it fed it, right? We were talking about Y&T, like Y&T s- survived it, right? Uh, Did they? You know, Kiss, like there's songs on Revenge that are cool, like Unholy is the coolest song Gene yeah. contributed to, right? So it didn't kill that, them in that regard, right? Carnival Souls, I love, right? Um, 
Well, I, Carnival I think Souls of, never got released properly. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. I I think of like Warrant Ultraphobic. Yeah. I love that record. Right. So I I wouldn't say it killed it. Um, it 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 unfortunately made some of those. I love Arcade, the Arcade record. I would consider that grunge influence, right? Stephen Piercy and Fred Curry. Like, that was heavier than Rat, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, kind of made them find new flavors to write in. What do you think? Uh, well, I mean, I, I, I've gone on record a couple times. I don't. I think the movement kind of killed itself. The analogy I used on the Screaming Trees, which I'm quite proud of, is that, like... Uh, Hair metal was already dead, but it was a classic movie mistake where grunge walked in and found hair metal dead and picked up the weapon, and so their fingerprints are on the gun, but they didn't pull the trigger. Uh, okay. How's that? <laughs> nice. nice <laughs> You're the first done. one to ask what I thought. I was like, <laughs> Nicely done. All right. Well, I, I think we, uh, we've uh, spooled the, uh, the, the tape all the way to the end. We're ready to flip it over and... Uh, uh, side two opens up with Spoon Man. But I remember when this first came out, I was like, what the hell is this? Like, this is crazy, right? Um, you know, the, the, you know the, the history of it, like everyone probably surely knows, like the title came for a Jeff Ament thing or whatever from singles. And, you know, he didn't necessarily, Chris didn't necessarily know the Spoon Man at that point in time, but then offered him to come play on it. Uh, but that, you know, that rhythm is just so incredible. Like there's... This is like a force of nature type of song. You know, it's it's got all of their strengths like turned up to 11, right? Um, there's plenty of room in there for this unique Spoon Man thing. When they break down and there's the drum drumming in the middle, it's just incredible. Uh, the spoons in the mix is so much fun. Uh, you know, what can you say about this? I, I just think it's an epic. Seriously. Um this song sucks, man. Um, I I uh, I bought the record in spite of hearing it before it came out. You know what I mean? Uh, really? To me, this is a lot like um, th- this is like a Kiss fan that because you brought up Kiss that cannot tell the difference between Love Gun and something off a of Monster or Sonic Boom and go they're they're both the same tempo. They got the same delivery, really. So this is. they're equal to you because of those dumb things yes this has all the basic you know you know generalizations you can make about Soundgarden in one song but fucking a how this was a lead single and a single period 
<laughs> is beyond me. And this is a low moment on a fairly bloated record. So I, you could easily just fucking toss this one away, use it as that shitty European single B-side, and us Americans could have been spared like we were properly meant to be. But uh, wow. Uh, f- I let me hear your rating before I give mine. <laughs> wow, I'm surprised. Uh, I, I did. did you know it's about a guy who plays spoons? How'd you, you know, I, like you, you told the story of actually how the title actually came to be. It's almost like sad that it it, it fucking <laughs> ended up being a guy. There, oh, there actually is a guy who fucking uh, plays spoons. What's won that? A Grammy too. Won a Grammy too. Oh nah. Uh, actually, he did not get the a, a Grammy. Well, that came up in our research that uh, he did not actually get his own Grammy. Oh, the man. song won a Grammy, though, right? Is that what you're saying? Right. Okay, right. the actual right. Spoon Man <laughs> did not get one. And he probably he should. Did. He fucking played on the damn thing, and it was best rock metal performance. So, right. yeah, Michael tells a <laughs> fabulous story about the... <laughs> The experience that it was, because, you know, it was one of my jokey questions, like, so how many spoon solos had you recorded up to this point? Were you were you brought in for that purpose alone? But uh, uh, anyway, what's your what's your rating here? I like your uh, explanation of comparing the kiss to the kiss. That was uh, well explained. (laughs) Uh, I don't I don't agree, but I I take your perspective. And as such, I'm going to I'm going to throw out a questionable rating thing. Right. Just to. Yeah. okay. To marry with your. uh, um, uh, critique uh, of of Mary Threes. I'm going to give this seven out of seven Mary Threes. <laughs> I think so far that's my favorite. Uh, <laughs> um, man, so now I got to do the math and kind of how does my initial ranking of one blank to five fit to that? I'm giving it a far, far too kind two out of seven Mary Threes. <laughs> That would be two Mary Threes. I'm giving it seven Mary Threes. You're giving it two Mary Threes. I am, um, yes. Uh, so, <laughs> for anybody that didn't follow along there, <laughs> American Standard. Um, all right, next up is Limo Rex. I'll be going down for the rest of the This is music by Matt and Kim. Uh, slower, heavier. Uh, it's uniquely Soundgarden, unquestionable. But there are times where I think you can feel uh, Zeppelin, right? And that's Absolutely. that's overused as a reference point. But you know, on on maybe it was the episode with Steven. You talked about the song "In the Light." Uh, this one sounds like "In the Light" to me, okay. and you didn't know "In the Light" at the time, but you should go listen to "In the Light." No, I- I just it wasn't one that I could recall without you know right yeah so and um, I and I I think I threw a little bit of in the light in the actual episode but I think you did yeah. yeah this one has that feel to me like there's this descending pattern in the first half of the verses that okay sounds like in the light to me and obviously the the it's overall comparison but uh, there's a bottom heaviness to the drums on this one right it's you know um, and again you talked about it it was on the core episode with Steven, I think mm-hmm. right. Um, 
Yeah, then there's there's great solos in here. There's a first solo that's like, you know, because the that is kind of descendant, the first solo feels as, ascendant, right? Which is a nice yeah. you know, um, flowy thing. I just love clever songwriting like that. Um, Chris Cornell called this his shame on decadent song. And I heard him talking uh, or quote about uh, seeing Axl Rose in a, one of those Guns N' Roses videos, right? Like, remember those fucking just terribly overburdened, overexpensive Guns N' Roses? He's out on a carrier. Yeah. And he's, it's as strange as maybe the worst one, right? Where okay. he's like, he dives off and he turns into dolphins and, you know, he's got servants <laughs> and like, yeah, that's like, uh, that's. Axel's my kind of crazy. Yeah, I think that's what he was writing about. That that him and Kanye. You know, shame on that decadence, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and that uh, I, I like that. The cause a wreck of you. Just that. Mm. Um, <laughs> we should talk a little bit about the band. They're like, well, what was my bizarro uh, Beatles comparison to a, a, a lyric, you know, approach? I these guys are kind of like the bizarro poison, you know. I've always joked, even though it's one hundred percent true, that poison is almost an anomaly because, like, they literally don't have anybody that in the band that at their position is even really mediocre at it. Like by themselves, as a singer, a guitar player, a drummer, a bass player, mediocre would be the high end how you would rate any of them as individuals. So they are they're the sum of their parts. We're typically like you know look like a band like uh, Van Halen. We got Eddie and Alex who are on the upper echelon. David, uh, as great as he is, it's not his voice that is the most, you know, uh, that's not where he gets his strength. And same with, uh, uh, you know, you get the, you get the, you get the analogy. Anyway, yeah, yeah. across the board here, uh, for different reasons, and they, they work together great, but, I mean, you got one of the best singers of, you know, of the genre and probably of all time in rock music. Mm. Um Matt Cameron is a next level drummer. He probably doesn't get the the praise he does because he's a guy who fits the song, but you know, he doesn't do that Neil Pert Alex Van Halen kind of thing. But he probably can, you know what I mean? It's just it just wasn't where they were they were at as a band. Kim Thale is amazing at just matching what Chris is writing, especially, you know, between Bad Motorfinger and this record. You know, he had more of a role in the songwriting on the previous albums, but um still just knowing how to fit it you know, find his place and his voice and Ben Shepard, you know, you know, say what you want to, you know, he's a, he's a fucking killer bass player. There's a lot of inventive stuff that we haven't got into, uh, bass playing wise that I think comes through on this record, but he's also, it turns out kind of a unique songwriter and how he approaches things. And when he does bring something, it kind of switches gears much to the chagrin of some people, but I like it. Yeah. Well said. Um, and one thing about Kim too, again, not, not a guitar player, but, uh, <laughs> the fact that he, you know, he... I'm sorry I made that comment about the car, uh, power chords. Well, he wasn't, he wasn't, uh, like, they, they play for the song, right? And they lock in and they play as a unit. You know, he's not trying to do, like you, like you said, he's not trying to shred and do, like, you know, an Ingve solo or whatever, yeah. like, in the front of the stage. Like, he's, he's playing for the song and locked in with the guy next to him who's playing for the song on, you know, six string as well. Right. Like those two guys together right. are so well connected that you, like you even said earlier, like, I don't know which one it was. Right. And I'm not saying that they're interchangeable, but they're, you know, they, they seem to be, uh, you know, uh, in unison. That yeah. Like, uh, like real brothers on that front, yeah. you know, real, uh, uh, synchronous, 
Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Serendipitous. Ooh, I love ser- That's one of my favorite words of all time. Most of the good decisions in my life have come through serendipity. Uh, <laughs> what about a, what about a rating for limo rack? Limo rack. I'm going to give this one uh, five out of five stage dives. Mm, uh, I I like it just a hair less than you. I'm only going to stage dive four out of five times on this one. <laughs> Up next is uh, the day I try to live. The day I tried to live. has like this eeriness to it like yeah. this dissonance right I, and I, I, I sabbath to me is what their their tone reminds me of almost every record so right yeah yeah um and I'm that's the first the pr- person to ever say that too excuse <laughs> of me course. well did you hear me earlier i compared them to zeppelin i think that's the first time that's ever been done all right on yeah we're breaking some real ground well here. i like them first and that, you know there's the day i try to live <laughs> has those has again has those time signature shifts yeah right there's layered vocals like when he's doing the you know might do it uh might make it right uh, and then it kind of ends with that you know one more time around kind of settles in like he like there's clever like there's lyric writing and but then it's how it sits and how he sings with himself right oh I've, brilliantly said yeah obviously like the black hole sun is like you know, that's the example to end all examples, right? If you, you know, if you watch them do that solo acoustic, right? You know, he, he sings, you know, in his normal register and then he goes, I'm not going like he does them both, right? And he just goes back and forth, like with ease, right? So in this one, he's doing a little bit of that where he's singing with himself, right? He's calling, responding sure. his own thing. And th- that always gets me. Like, I'm always a sucker for that. Uh, you know, it's, it's lyrically, this is like a dark song. It's dark and and yet lovely and then hopeless, right? And then it ends with hope for for like not being hopeless again tomorrow, right? Right. And then and then repeat. Uh that's kind of a running theme on the album, I think. You know, it's like it, it's it talks about despair without like saying it's not worth it. <laughs> you know? Right. There is a sense of hope to everything that, that's on this album. Yeah, I mean, I hope you're right. Except for uh, Spoon Man. Yeah, I mean, you it hope is it's over soon. Right, it is dark, <laughs> and you know, we've all felt this, right? Yeah. Um, you know, there's, and there's an interesting. You were, we were just talking about Matt Cameron. There's an interesting thing, and I'll try to like where he hits the bass like three times, and then the next time around he hits a snare three times, like in an interesting. You know, those things. Like if he did it the first verse. With the bass drum, he did it the second verse, let's say, with the snare he drum. He does it, it one of, more time around? I think so, yeah. <laughs> it kind of builds the <laughs> dynamics, right? Um, just so fucking good. Just those little subtle things. Sure. 
No, uh, I, I think that's what he brings to the table as a drummer. Really, is 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 actually making an impact. He kind of reminds me a little bit about uh, Bill Ward. Impact to the song is what I'm saying. Bill Ward had a, an ability to do that. And even for all the 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 people that think I just bash Kiss, I thought Peter Chris in in the early albums really had a way to kind of like make the drums kind of go against the what you would typically get on some of those songs if they had had a more straight-up rock drummer, and it, it adds to it for me. Yeah, Mick it, Fleetwood, another good example like yeah, that. Yeah, there you go. Yep. Yeah, so uh, what do you think of The Day I Tried to Live? Um, well, I, I always this is a, a sort of a sister song to Blow Up the Outside World off the next album. Uh, I, uh, what, what's that one called? Um, uh, well, whatever. Down on the Upside. But uh, to me, those sea songs kind of seemed like they were, they were kind of like Portland in Seattle. Uh, so this would be Seattle, and that would be Portland. But uh, I, I, t- I basically echo a lot of what you just said. The one thing I'll add to that is that I absolutely, I'm always on the edge, just waiting to hear him sing that line. I should have stayed in bed, and just the way he can hit it, like I clearly can't. Um, it's classic okay. Cornell, and it just it always sends you a shiver. Because what he, it, it's like the emotion that he's singing a line that we all have fucking felt on a day of just yeah. certain days. Like, man, I just should have stayed in bed. And the way he sings it almost like just, it, it's just the perfect, like you, you, you said it better than I'm going to, but uh, the, what he's singing and how he's singing it and the music that it fits with is just, it's so symbiotic. Yeah. Well said. Anyway, yeah, thank, and and what a blessing to have that on record, yeah. right? To, to like that's what an artist does, right? Like they they're able to put this thing into the material world for our ears to enjoy and our hearts to feel indefinitely, right? That we could never express in that way, right? But yeah. like you said, like him singing that that like I defy anybody not to feel that. Right. And if you haven't felt that, then fuck you, right? <laughs> and it almost pisses pisses me off, too. It's like, that's a very, that's a bumper sticker that you just sang. You know what I mean? And in other words, we all had it. It's not like you came up with that fucking phrase. You know, it's like you just put it in the most eloquent, perfect way ever. And fuck you for that, because uh, I just wrote a song called Power Ram. Uh, <laughs> <but> <laughs> what about a rating here, man? Yeah, and he was good looking, and uh, he was yeah, tall. everything. It's like fuck him. Ads. I bet you that motherfucker had abs, right? Oh yeah, he was shirtless on the cover of Spin at least once. And then remember, he had like that beautiful hair. And then he cuts it. It's like fuck. He looks better. Like how does uh, yeah. you just changed <laughs> right. your whole look, and you're somehow even better looking? But uh, yeah, it's not fair. Yeah, exactly. How could this guy be writing such a dark shit in his life? He had fucking everything. Some of us are like painting our cars, going the lengths of painting our cars and hiding and getting, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> having clandestine meetings, people taking us to school and whatnot, and to no avail. Ugh, and this guy just effortlessly, right? Yeah. Just wakes up one day and says, this is how I look. And everybody's like, oh, my God. Oh, yeah. man. I had, to, I had to give myself a home perm. That guy's hair was naturally that good, curly. <laughs> there's, there's, uh, you know, there's, the, there's the type of dude. And I hate this guy. Chris Cornell is one of them, right? Where, yeah. like, if he was working at the gas station, like, the ladies would still love him because he's still, <laughs> right? right? Yeah. You know, wh- whereas, like, uh, you know, I think of uh, Norman Reedus, right, from Walking Dead. Like, the ladies love Norman Reedus, right? But they only love him because he plays Daryl Dixon and he's a badass, right? If Norman Reedus was at the gas station, he wouldn't have the same appeal as a That's Chris a Cornell at the analogy. gas station. Yeah. 
Yeah, you know they could have cast uh, Chris Cornell in uh, what was that? Um, Let's do it for Johnny movie, uh, the S.A. Hinton uh, thing, uh, The Outsiders. Outsiders, that's it. Yeah. yeah, he could have been cast as one of the people working at the gas station with Soda Pop. He could have been Soda Pop, man. <laughs> right. Uh, but never a dick about it. No, yeah, yeah, we should be a little careful because the the guy did actually suffer from a lot of anxiety and and just because someone's good looking, more talented than you, and the best singer on the planet, and 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 the perfect height to make everybody seem just a little bit short, doesn't mean he's got it all going on. (laughs) Of course, of course, yeah, yeah, just the opposite. But um, even still, uh, yeah, fuck him. So, (laughs) so what was this? This was the day I tried to. Yeah, what's your rating Uh, here, man? I'm going to give this uh, five out of five. Uh, we mentioned Alice in Chains. I'm going to give it five out of five rotten apples. Okay. Um, this gets four and a half rotten apples for me. All right. The next track, uh-huh. Kickstand. Brief, tight, uh, in between the sweeping, heavier, fucking sure. emotional, draining, ambitious songs, right? I like these tight little interludes, although that uh, that doesn't give them enough credit, right? Um, standalone pieces. This is just a straight ahead, like you said, you know, um, track it. And one thing that was interesting about grunge, you know, I don't know if you got into this about about it definitionally, but you know, a lot of times they would use like childhood imagery. Right. Like yeah. uh, Marilyn Manson's lunchbox, oh, and, you know, Eddie, Eddie Vedder talking about, you know, um, what's the song where he's told he's adopted and he's talking to his, his stepfather. Right. Uh, yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, like there's a lot of childhood imagery. Right. And, you know, kickstand is that. But it's, a, you know, it's, a, it's it, you know, rock and roll would use that a lot, you know, as a relatable thing, you know, but it. You know, singing about kickstand is is a much more visceral thing than, say, like Van Halen's. You know, have you seen Junior's grades? Like that's <laughs> that's a different kind of childhood yeah. thing, hop teacher, whatever, right? But like, you know, again, they were they weren't necessarily singing about different things, but like more uh, uniformly human, physical, visceral things that you know we could connect to more. Like I, you know, I. I didn't have the teacher from Cherry uh, Lawn or whatever, right? I, you know, um, you know, I don't know what it feels like to be tardy, but uh, you know, I certainly had a kickstand, right? Yeah, I get you. That's actually a great, uh, great little bit of insight there. No, that has not come up. So, um, uh, well done there. Uh, what about? Why get, that's why. You, that's why you pay me the big bucks. Exactly. Uh, I, I agree with your sentiment too, as far as how it's sequenced this is kind of a nice little break and and it kind of adds to the the overall color of the record all the way through so what about uh what do we got for a rating here i'm gonna give this uh four out of five big muffs Mm, nice um because it's short it gets three and a half big muffs uh from from baco now we get to fresh tendrils uh i what is a tendril by the way isn't it like a uh like an octopus is like a uh like a finger or a feeler i thought that was a tentacle like a root? Yeah. Tentacle. So what's a tendril? Right. <laughs> You've been dropping four syllable words all night, Eric. 
<laughs> What's a goddamn tendril? Isn't it like a? Isn't it like a tentacle? Isn't it like a root? A finger? Are they, are they uh, uh, synonyms or something? I think so. Oh, okay. Well, I, I was disagreeing with you. I I just uh... I didn't look it up, but that's my understanding of the definition. Tendril. Right. Well, what's fresh about this? And uh, what do you got? Uh, I love this one. Uh, the lead guitar keeps me actively listening. Uh, lyrics by Chris Onis and Matt. Music by Matt. Uh, the way he says, uh, throw yourself away. So to, um, it's kind of rough to hear this stuff because it's, it's obviously the struggles of an addict, yeah. right? Like yeah. there's, there are lines like, you know, uh, it sits upon your tongue, uh, naked in your eye, meaning it's easily detectable. Like if you know someone that's, that's high, right. Taste the shame is the refrain, right. It's just, it's rough to hear some of that stuff, you know, knowing, you know, about him and his friends and so forth uh yeah but you know song wise it's good a little bit on the heavy side given the the lyrical content i do i do love that opening almost kind of laid back riff the way it kind of kicks in and then gets that long time long time come in again another example of him being able to deliver something that isn't like this super rangy thing and it still sounds perfect but uh yeah um i i I like the song a lot too what do you what do you have for a rating here uh, I'm gonna give this one uh, three out of five citizen dicks. Mm, wow, I uh, <laughs> uh, I, I give it th- uh, three and a half uh, citizen dicks. The next track, Fourth of July. Chris Cornell explained that he wrote this based on, uh, I guess, a recurring acid-inspired vision he had of people following him. <laughs> um, you know, and it's, you know, it's dark, right? It's Jesus getting buried, lots of fires and flames and scorching and, you know, definitely apocalyptic and uh, dystopian, right? Uh, to use big words. By the way, um, like... Don't you hear like when you hear like Darwinian or Orwellian, you're like, how did Darwin and Orwell get that? Uh, you know, 
Like, why don't we have like a a, a Bachinian or an? I was gonna go Eric er, Ericinian, right? Uh, you know what I mean? Would it be Millerinium? Right, Millerinium. The closest we have in recent times is like Trumpian and Clintonian, right? Oh, those boy. are those are the right. That's terrible. We need to uh, we need to lobby to get like a Puninian <laughs> from Sunny, right? <laughs> Well, I can always use more poon anywhere, so. Yeah. <laughs> Sunny Pooninian. It's very Pooninian, this one. <laughs> Pooninian. I don't know what that means, but. Yeah, well, well yeah. you came up with the word. Now you need to define it. Well, anything, like, related to Sonny Pooney, of his, that dude is always in a good mood, very charming, hmm. right? Yeah, Straight for the most shooter. part, yeah. Super so anything tall. That fits, anything that fits in that, we'll call it Pooninian from now on. Like, a Pooninian would mean that you're, like, this gentle giant. Yes, Yes. And you like to collect guitars and, you know, yeah. talk uh, breathlessly about Y and T. That yeah. would be Puninian. That's good. There we go. Yeah. Yeah. We, 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 uh, we, we just added something to the world. Uh, Smithian would be you shit on honey don't. Mm, that's right. <laughs> that's it. That's a very specific. <laughs> <laughs> He's, he took a very Smithian approach on uh, the catalog of Carl Perkins. Oh, Carl boy. Perkins? Yeah, I'm not. <laughs> yeah, I think yes. I think yes. Honey, yeah. don't. Anyway, uh, what are your thoughts on Fourth of July? I, I love it. It's sludge perfection. You know, um, uh, this is the only song that Michael Beinhorn mixed, which is why it's got that little cross next to it on the back. Um, hmm. When you look at the song list there, but uh, to me, and again, you, you talked. It, it's not like this. This song that you kind of like breakdown it's almost like one thing from beginning to end and again we didn't talk on it too much but so many different tunings uh and this is another one i just uh it, it i i i dig it quite a bit i love the even like the self-harmony that he does on there i heard it was yeah and so good are all these songs in uh non-standard tunings did they generally do that um they went overboard on this one if, if you want my personal opinion but you know the, they delivered so i i don't you know i don't really think it affected the product i th- fell on black days i think is just standard drop detuning as but i think most of the other stuff, there, there's something slightly different going on. I did come across something that broke down the tuning on every tune. Um, mm-hmm. I went to Fell on Black Days because that's the only song on here I ever learned how to play, and that, I, that was in uh, Drop D. So either I learned it wrong um, or it, that's what it is. So it, it, it really could be either. <laughs> it's a long time ago. So what you're saying is the, the clever tunings they didn't get in way in the way of themselves sometimes they, sure, prop, they, sometimes they, they well they they seemed like they were comfortable with them and, and would write songs with well they would tune up to that and you know it's just um i've always found that more of a hurdle uh but i'm also probably not uh on the same level musically uh so probably is a simple simple explanation there occam's razor is that deep enough for you uh oh yeah yeah well <laughs> you're just not that good baco so uh step aside <laughs> Occam's Razor. Love it. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to keep up with you. Yeah, so... Miller, uh, uh, Miller Arian is being uh, unnecessarily academic. <laughs> <laughs> unnecessarily. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm coming. I feel like I'm pompous now. Uh, um, yeah, so 4th of July. I'm going to give this one... Uh, I'm going to give this one 4 out of 5 Butch Vigs. Mm, nice. This also gets four to five butch eggs from uh, myself as well. The the next tune gets shit on quite a bit. It's it's called half. Mm-hmm. 
I'm down with it. Uh, I think it's a trippy interlude. I think it's some. It's you know he talked about it. It was something he put together early on in joining the band. You know, obviously it's musical lyrics by Ben Shepard. He's you know he sings on it. It's brief. It's two minutes, right? Yeah. Uh, but I think it's an interesting arrangement. There's cool vocal effects. There's cello and viola, which I'm a sucker <laughs> for. It's not not the guy from Kansas, but uh, yeah, too bad know, he was booked like that I, weekend, <laughs> right? Like I said about uh, he was on tour at the Pumpkins. Right. <laughs> uh, like I said about kickstand, like I love having these breaks in there. Right. Like it's not, you know, like the song before this and the song after this are just heavy as fuck. Right. Like, you know, it's nice to have just this quirky, creative, you know, I don't I don't skip over it. Like it's not annoying to skip over it. I'm sure there are people that would disagree with that. But, you know, I like I like the break, you know, otherwise, you know, like it's it. It can be a little bit too weighty. The, the 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 singing and the way it's recorded are very um I don't know, almost psychedelic in a sense. Um right. to me the the music is really the strong part of it. And I like the way he sings it, but it's almost kinda like wow I mean it's it's kinda almost uh I love the, the acoustic guitars like I think it's a keeper. Yeah. There's clips of them playing this on the 20th anniversary tour, right? Um, and it's fun to watch Ben, you know, watch his left hand as he's playing it, right? Uh, so, yeah, I enjoy this. I would, I definitely would not get rid of this. You know, it's not, you know, on a record with Black Hole Sun, it's not going to, you know, be setting the world on fire, but it's cool that it's here. It's unique. I have I think on almost every episode, I skipped one song like Kickstand, and uh, I, I routinely forget the rating. But yeah, what do you got for a rating on half? Did you call like uh, Did you call Joey like Nola the whole episode, or did you call like <laughs> Stephen Sunny the whole episode? Did I just call you Craig? Uh, no, no. Oh you, God, I was like, I, I think you called me Craig three times so far. Uh, 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 one time intentionally. Uh, okay. Uh, I thought yeah, I for, just did it. I was like, oh fuck, I'm dead. That's all right. Yeah. We're all friends here. Um, <laughs> yeah, for half, I would give this. Uh, I would give it five out of five screaming trees. I, I like half. Uh, yeah, you know what? I'm probably going to go a little lower. I'll go four out of five uh, screaming trees, but I, I dig it a lot. And yeah, you know, as much as I I, I, um, I joked about how many syllables are in your words, I'm into monosyllabic words, so uh, Craig fits in a lot easier than Eric. It's really just I'm that just simple. <laughs> so who's got time for that extra syllable? <laughs> oh man. All right, so like I said, uh, if, if, if you weren't feeling like shit already, uh, the album closes with a dark tune called Like Suicide. not necessarily about suicide it's about a bird that he discovered so he was you know to paraphrase the story he was at home songwriting or whatever and he heard a thud upstairs or outside and he went to investigate 
and there was a bird that had flown into his window and was kind of laying there uh, dying, you know, because it had broken its neck kind of thing, right? Uh, which is the line, uh, with a broken neck lays my broken gift. Yeah, okay. Um, and, and he basically euthanized it by hitting it with a brick, according to his telling of the tale, right? Which in and of itself is a little fucked up. Like, I don't think I could bring myself to smash it. Me either, man. Brick. <laughs> That's kind of right? dark. Yeah, right. So, who is he, Ted so Nugent? Just, yeah, just let it. I don't know. Ted Nugent would have got freezer. a flamethrower out or a grenade or something. <laughs> right. Maybe put it in the freezer so it's fall asleep or something, right? I don't know. He would have um, choked it with a copy of the Constitution. Right, exactly. <laughs> Uh, why do you hate freedom, Baka? Uh, uh, it's got the word dumb in it. It, it right. makes me feel self-conscious. Yeah. So that's the that's the origins of the story. It's not necessarily about suicide, right? Yeah. Um, and, and it explains the lyrics. Like there's, you know, he uses the term gilded cage and she'd fly so sweetly. And, you know, murder is even a, ter- a term for crows, right? A group of crows, right? Oh, sure. Um you know, and, uh, again, just song-wise, like the drum sounds and the shifting times and the turnarounds, it's like just so vital to their chemistry, uh, you know, um, to take – and just from, again, going back to the artist, right? So to take a moment like that where you experience this, you know, visceral ending of a life and, you know, put it into something like this song that's, you know – I think it's like seven minutes, right? And you know, it would be, it would be picked up and picked apart by listeners for generations yeah. to come. And you know, coincidentally, the sad, you know, that that in its in and of itself is true artistry, right? But the sad thing is that you know it, it's associated with Kurt Cobain, who you know had just passed away, right? Um, just taking his own life. Um, well, I had heard him say that that people also. All, a lot of people thought he was talking about um, uh, Andrew Wood as well. Right. Yeah. And then now given his circumstances, whatever, like it's, you know, but yeah, I mean the, the story as per him is the bird, the bird story. Right. Um, you know, and there's obviously metaphors in there and so forth, but you know, yeah, I mean, you said it, it's just a heavy, heavy song either any way you look at it. At this point, if you've listened to the record from beginning to end, this is a, just the perfect way to close it. You know, this is a well-sequenced record. Uh, Michael Beinhorn, I can tell you, is quite proud of the sequencing on here because he he said he didn't play a role in it. But it is perfect. You know what I mean? It just it ebbs and flows and 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 doesn't hit you too much with one thing. And uh, it, it it's weird because it wasn't really written with that intention. And, and a lot of a lot of great albums aren't. You know, not everybody sits down and writes a concept record. So I, I get it. Um, but yeah, I just it's a brilliant brilliant way to close this album. You're here. All said. I'm gonna give this one. Uh... Uh, five out of five uh, thermal underwears with ripped <laughs> jeans and Doc Martens. Oh, man, you have no idea how long I milked that look. It was like, fuck, <laughs> final, finally something fashionable that just requires me to open my dresser. Um, yeah. <laughs> I give this five out of five uh, flannels uh, underneath uh, um, ripped jeans, although I could never afford the Doc Martens, uh, I, you know, and probably until recently, but... Uh, <laughs> just. 
Nice. All right. Well, I, I say it every every episode. Um, I, I like to give my guests the last word as far as closing thoughts on the record. So I get mine out of the way to to set you up. Uh, I have said quite a bit. I think I touched on a little bit at the beginning here. I'm not sure if it's the part that's going to make the episode or not. But um, when, when when grunge broke, this was at a time of my life that I was definitely very unsettled. You know, and, and I, I don't. I, I want to make it clear. I, I don't want to over dramatize that that stuff. But it, it's not. I definitely don't look back at those times and those memories as as it seems like a lesser version of myself, and I don't feel that way, you know. Before that, like you know, I was awkward as fuck during high school and 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 all that stuff. But I I don't have that same kind of darkness, I guess, when I when I touch on certain memories. So, um, but I do look very fondly at the at a lot of the relationships and stuff that I made, and, and the music was very instrumental. I don't think I, I knew it at the time, but it was much a coping me- mechanism, whether it was trying to fumble my way around a guitar or, 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 or even just listening to these things. But in those moments where you actually go to a concert or you go to a record store, those, those never, uh, those are always cherished memories all I'm getting at. But so while it might seem like I'm just talking about records, these, these, these records recall those memories and a lot of them just aren't that happy. But by this point, I'm, this is probably the first one that we've talked about that meant a lot to me. I'm, this is a stage in my life that I look back a little more like I'm starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel as far as the things I was dealing with. Um, and almost fittingly, because this album has a lot to do with talking about dark times, and, and you, you mentioned it just a couple songs back, with, with a, a sense of hope. You know, mm-hmm. when, when, when he delivers these. And for, I don't even know if I, like I said, I, I, I don't recall being that, like, I don't know, um, aware of it at the, at the moment, but this song, this album probably connected with me because of that. I was already a big fan. Um, it's not my favorite uh, Soundgarden record, but it is one of the greatest albums of, of all time, and, and it definitely deserves to be on this list. So anyway, this record was very empowering to me, and Chris Cornell really at this point could do no wrong in, in, my, in my eyes at all. Odd, oddly enough, I felt proud for him when I heard this. It was almost like a parent because I had kind of been there with his, his career for a little bit. So, yeah, this was something else, man. Um, what about you? Uh, well, thanks for sharing that. And that, that, just that last sentiment is, is so beautiful that you, know, that, that, you, that you were proud of him, right? And I think that was, you know, I think that's, part of the success of this record, like I, I said it a couple times, they, you know, Bad Motorfinger, you know, they already had their identity. They yeah. were already loved, right? So, you know, people were already invested in, you know, again, I don't know what the budget was necessarily, but, you know, people wanted them to succeed, right? They were on this trajectory and they didn't, uh, they didn't do whatever, Def Leppard slang. They didn't take some weird sidestep and do some, crazy off the beaten path thing it was the next evolution creatively you know they didn't sell out you know it's it stayed true with the roots of everything that had brought them to this you know quote grunge dance right and i think i think the fans embraced it and i think a larger audience at large embraced it right uh obviously prompted by what nirvana and pearl jam had done and various others and so forth right so you know everything pointed to this record and there probably was a lot of pressure on it and home run man like every you know there's there's things you could probably critique around the edges here and there but uh you know by and large like what a masterpiece right like they you know they they seized the reins and and delivered something that you know is legendary um you know and uh, like i said it's it's a mix of 
like the term grunge could be so easily a, a, a slur, you know, a slur or a slight yeah. or a, you know, but it's not. It's 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 expansive, right? And and this is one of the biggest reasons why, because of these songs and you know their blends of of influences, their blends of creativity, the chemistry between the four of them. Uh, yeah, just an absolute epic. And I, you know, I, I love what you said about, you know, personally, uh, you know, it was, there was a bit of a light at the end of the tunnel with this record. Right. And I hadn't thought of this until you just said that, uh, you know, there's a, there's a feeling you get like, you know, when you sing along with poison is nothing but a good time. That's <laughs> one, that's, that's a, distinct type of feeling, right? It's yeah. a party vibe or whatever, right? But when you sing along with Chris Cornell as poorly as all of us do, because we're yeah. not him, right? There's a primal scream uh, quality to that, right? There's a catharsis to that. So when I sing Chris Cornell songs terribly alone at full volume, uh, it's a bloodletting. Like I'm letting out a thing, right? And he's, he's, you know, he's one step ahead of me embodying it in a way. Right. And, you right. know, because I'm because I'm singing along with him, I'm letting it out. Right. So, you know, when I when I get to the end of the record or turn it off or whatever, you know, to use the old thing they would do in the 70s, like after sex, you can light a cigarette and take a deep breath or whatever. Right. Because, you know, I've kind of let it all out. Right. So I think that's one thing that that Soundgarden and particularly this record, you know, uh, delivered as a gift to the world, right? Um, to a generation, you know, it let us get out some of that stuff. Right. Um, so yeah, well said what you said and thanks for having me on this episode. I, you know, I've enjoyed our conversation as always. Yeah. I'll tell you uh, to, to go back to it real quick. This moves all the way up from number nine to number four on my personal list. Uh, where would you rank this on the, out of the 25 that we got? I have this as number three on my personal list. Mm, Nice. All right, so yeah, this is a. Uh, apparently, Rolling Stone just got this one fucking wrong, man. I mean, uh, right. you got two of the, uh, I don't know, the leading minds in the Soundgarden super unknown talking about it right now and saying this right. is uh, how right. it goes. And you know, to to touch on your poison thing, um, I, as much as I like to use them as a punching bag or a, or a cheap shot once in a while, I don't want them to do this. I do want them to do of nothing course. but a good lot, good time, and and that's okay too. You know, I I didn't take it that way at, at all. I think you phrased it well. But, I, you know, as much as I, I shit on them, I should say, you know what, it, it's good that they're there for that, too. Yep. yep. So. Yeah, you can't, uh, you can't always have steak. Sometimes you want cheesecake. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> well, Eric, it's always a pleasure having you on the program. Uh, it, it's just fun to talk to you in general sometimes. So that's probably why it always ends up being like these like eight-hour sessions when we do it. Um, uh, I have a lot of love and respect for you, and of course, look for—I uh, don't know. Uh, do you even? You're you're kind of checked out for pods and sods for a while. Let me ask you on that real quick. Whatever. You know what? Never mind.
Were there any uh, records that you, you you thought were missing from the top twenty-five? Uh, besides Samantha Fox, um, <laughs> I would put. Uh, I mean, I. Um, I don't care case. what she's singing as long as I get to watch. I, she can play any kind of music. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.